Warning, file 13 contains content that may be too disturbing for some audiences. It contains graphic descriptions of crime scenes. It may not be suitable for children under 13. Listener discretion is advised. It was late on Christmas night, 1951, but Harry and Harriet Moore had yet to open any gifts. Instead, they had delayed the festivities in anticipation of the arrival of their younger daughter, Evangeline, who was taking a train home from Washington, D.C. to celebrate along with her sister and grandmother. The Moores had another cause for celebration. The day marked their 25th wedding anniversary, a testament to their unshakable partnership. But that night, in their quiet home, on a citrus grove in rural Mims, Florida, the African-American couple were fatal victims of a horrific terrorist attack at the hands of those who wanted to silence the Moors. Christmas Day, uh, 1951. Harry and Harriet Moore uh, came to their home that night, had dinner, uh, shared some cake, uh, talked uh, as a family, Around 10.15, 10.20, a bomb exploded under the Moore's bedroom. FBI investigations pointed to the KKK for the murders. No one was ever charged. listening to file 13. I'm your host Kwame Curry and here we revisit unsolved murder cases in black America. Before we get started I'd like to thank the team that make this podcast possible starting with my amazing co-host Bam. Unfortunately Bam is not here with us this week but she will be back for the next episode. Also the brilliant head of research and development Raven Clark Gross, the equally brilliant Jessica Hollis our research consultant and owner of Phoenix Creative Services who helps us with research, interviews, editing, fact-checking, and the man who brings the amazing sounds of suspense in the opening credits, Mr. Rano Sapiano, and finally, our voice actors, Mr. Corey Scott, Lisa Waters, Medina Smith, and Coco Rain. This week's episode um, is a little bit, it's an old one. Uh, however, I feel that every living American should know about this story and I'm embarrassed to say I never knew about this particular case which is the exact reason why I wanted to make this episode. As African Americans living in the U.S. we know that there are pivotal errors in our nation's history when it comes to the progression of our people that we should know and be familiar with. One of these pivotal errors would be the civil rights era which began by historical count accounts in the mid-1950s but technically after hearing this case you and I will agree that the civil rights movement started in the early 1950s and went until the late 1960s after the deaths of Dr. King and Malcolm X. Because this was such an important time for black America, we are exploring the case of Harry and Harriet Moore, the first civil rights activist killed during the civil rights movement. There's quite a bit to get through, so we'll get straight to the story. A bomb was placed right under the floor joist of the Moore's home, directly under their bedroom, killing them both. Harry died en route to the hospital, while Harriet, who lived to see her husband buried, died over a week later on January 3rd from her injuries she sustained in the explosion. Their daughter, Annie, 
and her grandmother, which is Harry's mom, survived as they were in another part of the home when the bomb went off. Harry was a lifelong educator. He was promoted to the position of principal at the local Titusville School for Colored People. Of course, at that time, the city school system was racially segregated, like so many others throughout the country. The school taught first through ninth grades, and Harry himself taught the ninth grade. In his first year of teaching, the school was closed early by the local school board just six months into the year as part of the local school system's systemic discrimination against black children. Harriet was a former teacher who had become an insurance broker, but after the birth of their second daughter, Evangeline, she went back to teaching at the same school Harry was the principal of. The murder of Harry and Harriet Moore caused multiple protests and rallies across the country. There was even a newspaper headline calling this the bomb heard around the world. Why was this couple targeted? Who exactly were Harry and Harriet Moore? And most importantly, why haven't we heard of them until recently? Let's go back and learn what made them a target. In 1934, Harry started the Brevard County NAACP. In 1937, Moore filed the first lawsuit in the Deep South to equalize black and white teacher salaries. He was backed by the NAACP attorney Thurgood Marshall, who was in New York. Thurgood Marshall later went on to become the first African-American Supreme Court justice. Though Moore's case was eventually lost in state court, it was the jumpstart for dozens of other federal lawsuits in Florida, which led to equalized salaries. Due to his activism in the local white-dominated county, Harry and Harriet both were fired from their teaching jobs by the state authorities. As a result, Harry became a full-time employee of the NAACP. The state's loss was the civil rights movement's gain. Harry T. Moore was born November 18, 1905 in Houston, Florida. That's located along the Suwannee River on the Florida Panhandle. He was the only child and the only son of Johnny and Rosa Moore. Johnny worked for the Seaboard Air Railroad and he also ran a small store in the front of their home. In 1914, when he was Harry was nine, his father's health began to fail and he passed away. His mother tried managed to raise him alone while also working in the cotton fields and running the store on the weekends. A year after his father's, his father's death, Rosa made the decision to send Harry to live with one of her sisters in Daytona Beach. In 1916, Harry moved to Jacksonville to live with three of his aunts, his aunt Jessie, Adriana, and Maisie Tyson. Jacksonville had a large and thriving African-American community. It was like the Harlem Renaissance or Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma, Seneca Village in New York, Rosewood right there in Florida. All businesses were black owned and operated. Buildings were very tall in the downtown area. That was very impressive to a young black child who had grown up in a rural community. So it was natural for Harry to be influenced by the community around him. And it was filled with strong examples of intelligent, successful African-Americans. His aunts were well-educated women. Two were educators and one was a nurse. The aunts took him in and treated him as their own son, providing him with an education and encouraging him to reach for the stars. In 1919, Harry moved back to Sewanee County where he enrolled in the high school program at Florida Memorial College. He was 19 when he graduated. Four years later with his degree, while at college he earned straight A's except for a lonely B. His classmates justly referring to him as Doc. That was his nickname. Harry went on to begin teaching in Cocoa, Florida in Brevard County. Now, while in Cocoa, Harry worked as a fourth grade teacher at the only black elementary school in town. It was during that time that he met his future wife, Harriet Sims. 
Harriet was a Bethune-Cookman college grad, and after a year of dating, the couple married. But they kept it a secret for six months because Harriet was three years older than Harry, and they believed his mother would not approve of their union. They were unfortunately correct. Harry and Harriet moved to Mims to live with her parents until they were able to build a home of their own on the adjoining acre of land. During that time, Harry worked at the Titusville Colored Schools, which went from the 1st to the 9th, and it was there that he was promoted to principal. In 1941, Harry organized the Florida State Conference of the NAACP and later became the organization's executive secretary. He started creating flyers and letters and protesting unequal pay, segregated schools, and the disenfranchisement of black voters. By 1943, Harry had moved on to publicizing and criticizing lynchings and police brutality. He began taking a more active step in launching investigations, talking directly to families and taking sworn affidavits on lynching cases. A year later, Thurgood Marshall won in the landmark case Smith v. Allwright, where the Supreme Court ruled that the Lily White Democratic Party was unconstitutional. Harry quickly organized the Progressive Voters League, and within six years, he was able to attract and get 116,000 voters registered to the Florida Democratic Party. This was a big deal because this represented 31% of all eligible voters in the state, which was 51% higher than any other state in the South. Dive into the world of unsolved murders in Black America with File 13. Each week on Wednesday, we explore a new case, whether it's local, historical, or from national headlines. Come with us as we tell the stories about the people who are less likely to have their murders solved. File 13, where we believe a cold case is not a closed case. Everywhere you listen to podcasts. Daddy Issues, the new album by Lauren Nicole is out now. Come into the world of the R&B songstress as she takes you through her journey of love, life, healing, trials, and tribulations. Check out her smash hits, I Met a Guy, Sorry, and Look Who's Crying Now. Daddy Issues, the album, streaming on all platforms. And now, back to the story. On January 2nd, 1944, 15-year-old Willie James Howard, a black boy, was kidnapped and lynched by three white men in Sewanee County after being accused of sending a love note to the daughter of one of the men. During Christmas 1943, Willie Howard sent cards to all his co-workers at the Van Priest Dime Store in Live Oak, Florida. Unlike the other cards, Willie's card to Cynthia Goff, a white store employee, revealed a youthful crush. His greeting expressed hope that white people would someday like black people. Now, according to my source material, it indicates that Cynthia was very upset about the card, which read, and I quote, Just a few lines to let you hear from me. I am well and hope you are the same. This is what I said on that Christmas card from WJH with love. I hope you will understand what I mean. That is what I said now. Please don't get angry with me because you can never tell what may get into somebody. I do not put it in there myself. God did. I can't help what he does, can I? 
I hope you don't think, I know you don't think much of our kind of people, but we don't hate you. All we want is to be your friends, but you won't let us. Please don't let anybody see this. I hope I haven't made you mad. And if I did, tell me and I'll forget about it. I wish this was a northern state. I guess you can call me fresh. Write and tell me what you think of me, good or bad. Sincerely yours, with love. To Cynthia Goff, I love your name, I love your voice. For SH, sweetheart, you are my choice. Unquote. After reading the letter, Cynthia's father, Phil Goff, brought two friends to the Howard home and demanded to see Willie. Despite his mother's pleading, the men dragged Willie away and then kidnapped Willie's father, James Howard, from work. The men drove the two Howards to the embankment of the Suwannee River, bound Willie's hands and feet, stood him at the edge of the water and told him to either jump or be shot. Willie jumped into the cold water below and drowned while his father was forced to watch at gunpoint. Willie's dead body was pulled from the river the next day. Goff and his accomplices later admitted to the local sheriff that they took Willie to the river to punish him, but claimed that the teen had become hysterical and jumped into the water unprovoked at the thought of being whipped by his father. Fearful for his own life and the other members of his family, James Howard signed a statement supporting Goff's account. He and his family fled Live Oak three days later and then shared the story of Willie's lynching. This case was largely forgotten even after Thurgood Marshall's push for action except for Harry Moore. He conducted his own investigation using the NAACP filing his own affidavit. Gathering his own witnesses and he sought out to get the federal government involved but the feds claimed that they lacked jurisdiction. In July 1949, a Groveland case became national news. In that case, four young black men were accused of raping a white woman. This caused an angry mob to tear through the all-black community of Groveland. They were burning homes and shooting into the homes and just completely destroying what it took families years to build. Eventually, the National Guard had to be called out for protection. Like other cases involving African Americans in the past, Harry began his own investigation in, in which he learned that the defendants had been beaten. The defendants, Walter Irving, Sammy Shepard, and 16-year-old Charles Greenlee, were convicted in 1949. Irvin and Shepard were sentenced to death, but their sentence was overturned by the Supreme Court in April 1951. The two young men were set up to be tried again in Lake County, but the victory of the pending trial was short-lived. On November 6, 1951, Sheriff Willis McCall was transporting the two young men to be prepared for the pretrial hearing, and he shot both of them, claiming that they had attacked him while trying to escape. Sammy died on the scene. Irving survived. Thurgood Marshall defended the retrial of Walter Irving. The killing drew national attention, and again, Harry began fighting for the sheriff to be suspended and charged for the young men's murder. Six weeks later, the Moore's home was bombed, causing both of their deaths. Although the FBI did investigate, the murders remained unsolved all of these years. Now, of course, the Ku Klux Klan is most likely responsible for planting the bomb, as they had roles in other prominent murders and bombings of black activists in black homes and churches, but no arrests were ever made. The Moors became the first NAACP members killed fighting for civil rights. Since the night of the explosion in 1951, there had been five separate criminal investigations initiated and completed. The first investigation was headed by FBI Frank Meech, which began on the night of the explosion, and which concluded in 1955, 
Mr. Meech said they had no jurisdiction. They knew that the Klan was behind it. J. Edgar Hoover was now ahead of the investigation after calls from federal government from people such as a young congressman named John F. Kennedy. The FBI visited every hardware store in Central Florida where they found it unremarkably easy to buy dynamite. It was suspected that it was a Klansman from Orlando who committed the heinous act. A week after the bombing during the investigation, a black man stated six months prior, two white men came into his store asking where the rich Professor Moore lived. Four other witnesses confirmed his story and one witness gave them a direct identification. The FBI took the identifications back to the Klan's informants who quickly identified the two men as Earl Brooklyn and Tillman Belvin. Earl J. Brooklyn, Brooklyn was a Klansman with a reputation for being extremely violent and who was described as a renegade. After being expelled from the clavern of the Ku Klux Klan in Georgia for engaging in unsanctioned acts of violence, you know someone has to be bad when the KKK kicks you out for violence. Brooklyn reportedly was in possession of floor plans of the Moore's home and was said to be recruiting volunteers to assist in the bombing. The second suspect, Tillman H. Curly Belvin, was also considered to be a violent member of the Klan and who was an associate of Brooklyn. Then we have Joseph Cox, another member of the Klan, who was implicated in the bombing by a fellow Klansman, Edward L. Spivy. Spivy, Spivy implicated Cox in the deathbed confection. While Spiffy suffered through the late stages of cancer in 1978, Cox committed suicide in 1952, one day after he was confronted by FBI. Both Brooklyn and Belvin died while the FBI's initial investigation was being conducted. Belvin died of natural causes in August 1952, and Brooklyn died of a heart attack on Christmas Day 1952, one year to the day after the bombing. The FBI tried indicting seven Klan members as a scare tactic to get them to talk, but the indictment was quashed by a judge. The second investigation was a joint investigation by the Brevard County Sheriff's Office and the Brevard County State's Attorney's Office in 1978. The third investigation took place in 1991 by the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. In 2004, a fourth investigation was commenced by the Florida's Attorney General's Office of Civil Rights. In 2008, the FBI again investigated the more homicides as part of the Departments of Justice cold case initiative. The investigation revealed that Harry's civil rights advocacy made him a known target of the Klan. No arrests were ever made in the case, even though there was sufficient evidence to make arrests and to put these men on trial. With all four of the suspects now deceased, the Department of Justice's Civil Rights Division closed the file on the federal investigation in 2011. The following day after the bombing on December 26, 1951, angry people from the black community in Titusville took to the streets, understandably angry and sad about the deaths of the Moors. The crowds began spreading word of the bombing. Everyone came out in the middle of the night. Men and women from Brevard County, some still in their night clothes, walked and rode towards Mims to protest. Most of the people had known Harry Moore personally, some through his job in education, others through the NAACP, and others through his voter registration efforts. Eventually, the assassinations triggered nationwide protests with rallies, memorials, and other events held following the news of the bombing. President Harry Truman and Governor Fuller Warren both received thousands of letters in protest of the murder of the civil rights activists. In New York City, a few weeks later, 
on January 5, 1952, baseball great Jackie Robinson held a memorial service for the Moors that drew close to 3,000 mourners. The NAACP also held a memorial service for them March 1952. That was held at Madison Square Garden. 15,000 people attended, and speakers like Langston Hughes came to give their respects. I'll be honest, the way this played out, I'm not really surprised at all. Accountability and perpetrators were brought to just being brought to justice was just something that our community was denied over and over again. One of my favorite quotes came from James Baldwin. To be a Negro in this country and to be relatively conscious is to be in a rage almost all the time. So I want to I want to end this episode with a song. It's called The Ballad of Harry T. Moore, written by Langston Hughes. So until next week, everyone, remember, a cold case is not a closed case. Talk to you next week. It seems I hear Harry Moore from the earth, his voice still cries. No bomb can kill the dreams I hold, for freedom never dies. Freedom never dies, I say, freedom never dies. No bomb can kill the dreams I hold, for freedom never dies. It happened in Florida, the land of flowers, it was on a Christmas night. Men came stealing through the orange grove, men of hate carrying dynamite. It was to a little cottage, the family the name of Moore. At the window hung sprigs of holly, a fine wreath at the door. It was on a Christmas evening and the family prayers were said. Mother, father, daughter and grandmother went to bed. The father's name was Harry Moore of the NAACP. He fought for the right for us to live. Black folk must be free. It seems I hear Harry Moore from the earth, his voice still cries. No bomb can kill the dreams I hold, for freedom never dies. Freedom never dies, I say, freedom never dies. No bomb can kill the dreams I hold, for freedom never dies. It could not be in Jesus' name beneath the bedroom floor. On Christmas night, the killers hid the bomb for Harry Moore. It could not be in Jesus' name the killers took his life and blew his home to pieces and killed his faithful wife. It could not be for the sake of love they did this awful thing. For when the bomb exploded and the moors died, no hearts were heard to sing. It seems I hear Harry Moore from the earth, his voice still cries. No bomb can kill the dreams I hold, for freedom never dies. Freedom never dies, I say. Freedom never dies. No bomb can kill the dreams I hold, for freedom never dies. And certainly no angels sing peace on earth, goodwill to men. But around the world an echo hurled across.
question when 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 will people in jesus name and when will they by prayer know that each one has the right to stand up everywhere when will people for the sake of peace and the sake of democracy know that no bomb you can make can stop us from being free it seems i hear harry more from the earth his voice still cries no bomb can kill our dreams i hope for freedom never dies freedom never dies i say Freedom never dies. No bomb can kill the dreams I hold. But freedom never dies. So if you see old Harry Moore walking on a Christmas night, don't you fear and run and hide. He has no dynamite. For in his heart is only love for all the human race. And for each and every one of us to have our rightful place. And this he says, I have him more as from the grave he cries. No bomb can kill the dreams I hold, for freedom never dies. Freedom never dies, I say, freedom never dies. No bomb can kill the dreams I hold for freedom never